Good evening. The Supreme Court discusses a death penalty terror case, a new variant of COVID in New York, and the Reverend Al Sharpton takes a shot. With these and other stories, I'm Paul DiRienzo with the news for Monday, March 22nd, 2021. The United States Supreme Court said Monday it will consider reinstating the death sentence for Boston Marathon bomber Jokar Tsarnaev, presenting President Joe Biden with an early test of his opposition to capital punishment. White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki says the president still opposes the death penalty, but wants the process has started before he came to office to play out. The president also believes that the Department of Justice is an independent institution. And of course, there are times where it is appropriate to have conversations, but I don't have any conversations to preview for you with the attorney general. Thanks. The justice has agreed to hear an appeal filed by the Trump administration, which carried out executions of 13 federal inmates in its final six months in office, including three in the last week of President Donald Trump's term. In late July, the federal appeals court in Boston threw out Sarnayev's sentence because it said the judge at his trial didn't do enough to ensure the jury would not be biased against him. The Justice Department had moved quickly to appeal, asking the justices to hear and decide the case by the end of the court's current term in early summer. Summer. Then Attorney General William Barr said last year, we will do whatever's necessary. Sarnayev's lawyers acknowledged at the beginning of his trial that he and his older brother, Tamerlan Sarnayev, set off the two bombs at the marathon finish line on April 15, 2013. But they argued that Jokar Sarnayev is less culpable than his brother, who they said was the mastermind behind the attack. Sarnayev, now 27, was convicted of all 30 charges against him, including conspiracy and use of a weapon of mass destruction and the killing of a Massachusetts Institute of Technology police officer. Five-time Emmy-nominated reporter Michelle McPhee was police bureau chief of the Boston Herald. Her books include Maximum Harm, the Sarnayev Brothers, the FBI, and the Road to the Marathon Bombing. The story of the bombing, she argues, begins earlier at a triple murder scene near Boston when three young martial artists were found brutally murdered with a pound of marijuana sprinkled over their bloody bodies. If we look back at the brutal triple murder of three young mixed martial arts fighters. It's the 10-year anniversary of 9-11. They were nearly decapitated. Their bodies were sprinkled with drugs. There was cash left behind at the scene. One of my law enforcement sources called me on that morning and said, it looks like an Al-Qaeda training video in here. And pretty much immediately, the friends of these victims, who are not weak guys, we're talking about three trained MMA fighters. The last phone call they had made was to a pizzeria in Waltham, Massachusetts, not far from the cul-de-sac where these bodies were found. And we now know that Tamlins and I have worked at that pizzeria as an off-the-books driver. You know, he was spotted by many people in the aftermath of the Boston Marathon. And we also know that the victims, friends and relatives pointed out to homicide investigators that the only person who didn't show up at the memorial service for these three dead young men was Tamlin Zanayev, who very often described one of the victims, Brendan Mess, as his only American friend. In fact, these two were so close, they once shared an apartment. So to the friends and family, Tamlin should have been an obvious suspect, but for inexplicable reasons, he never was, even though at the time investigators said that there was a white Mercedes that fled the scene and two suspects. Fast forward to the Boston Marathon on April 15th on Patriot's Day eight years ago. Um, law enforcement sources start calling me and reminding me of a story I had done 
on the 10-year anniversary of 9-11 about this inexplicable grizzly slang in Waltham, and they could connect Tamlin's and I am. So I broke the story for ABC News that Tamlin was being eyed as a suspect in this case. A few weeks later, the FBI flew down to interview Tamlin's and I have associate, another Chechen named Ibrahim Todeshev. And during that interview, Ibrahim Todeshev was shot dead as he was in the process of writing out a confession about how he and Tamlin went to that house and murdered those men. What does this mean? Do you have any theories about what's going on here? I suspect that Tamlin's and I was helping investigators on an unrelated case that had to do with jihad and drugs and money. I think that they gave him a pass because he he was in the midst of this investigation. And I think there was nobody clamoring for justice. But what's really interesting is that this case is at the center of Jahar Zanayev's ongoing fight to have his death penalty sentence vacated. The argument that his lawyers are making is, look, everybody knew how violent Tamerlan was because of what he did to those buddies of his. The only reason Jahar followed his brother down Boylston Street which is not true. There's plenty of evidence to suggest he was violent and extremist well before this date. But the argument that his lawyers make is that if the jury knew how scary Tamlin was, they might not have imposed a death penalty on him. So this is a pretty important case. So this entire argument that we know today, the Supreme Court is taking another hard look at. And that's why I think, you know, it all starts with the Waltham triple murder and the fact that the Middlesex County DA has kept everything sealed to this day is very telling. Why is the president who's against, who said he's against the death penalty in federal cases over and over again, allowing his Department of Justice to pursue this appeal? This was a very, very lengthy and expensive trial. In fact, the defense of Jahar Zanayev is under seal his ongoing defense and the cost of his two trials that led to the death penalty is also under seal. It's so expensive. They don't want us to know how much the taxpayers are paying for this kid's trial and his ongoing defense. So I can't speak to Biden. I know that there are families on victims on both sides of this argument. Some people just want him to go away, never to be heard of again. We know that he has spent his time in jail writing out these very weepy, self-aggrandizing, hand-scrawled lawsuits claiming that he's under psychological duress, which, as you can imagine, is maddening to anyone who saw the aftermath of that bloodbath on Boylston Street. Right. I just think that this is the law. He was convicted. He was sentenced to death. And this is the United States of America. This isn't where, you know, politicians can sway uh, based on, on their own personal beliefs, a decision that was made by a jury who heard the evidence. What's the takeaway on this? From You've been covering, you've written so many books about it. What should American people take away from this? Well, I think you should pay attention. Next month I'm dropping a podcast called Mayhem with Michelle McPhee, and it's going to be a true exploration into whether or not Tamlins and I have had a very close relationship with the federal government and was working as an informant. Michelle McPhee's books include Maximum Harm, The Tarnayev Brothers, The FBI, and The Road to the Marathon Bombing. And former President Donald Trump made a rare public statement to attack his successor's immigration policy at the southern border. Trump accused the Biden administration of mishandling the problems at the border where the Customs and Border Protection facilities are operating beyond capacity. The statement from Trump reads in part, 
All they had to do was keep it, this smooth running system on autopilot. Instead, in the span of just a few weeks, the Biden administration has turned a national triumph into a national disaster. Trump also called Homeland Security Chief Alejandro Mayorkas pathetic and clueless. But the White House continues to maintain the border is not in crisis. The White House press secretary. Children presenting at our border who are fleeing violence, who are fleeing prosecution, who are fleeing terrible situations is not a crisis. Uh, We feel that uh, it is our responsibility to humanely approach this circumstance and make sure they are treated with uh, treated and put in conditions that are safe. These photos show what we've long been saying, which is that the these Border Patrol facilities are not places made for children. They are not places that we want children to be staying for an extended period of time. Our alternative is to send children back on this treacherous journey. That is not, in our view, the right choice to make. Our focus now is on putting in place, is on solutions and putting in place policies, including expediting processing at the border, opening up additional facilities, something that you've seen developments on over the past several days, and there'll be certainly more on. Restarting our uh, Central American Miners Program, which was stopped in 2017. Thousands of kids should be eligible to apply for that, so they're not making this journey. So our focus is on solutions and implementing them as quickly as possible. White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki. And in COVID-19 news, the former head of the Food and Drug Administration, Dr. Scott Gottlieb, said Sunday that New York's homegrown COVID-19 variant may be infecting people who have already had the virus or even been vaccinated. The former Trump administration officials said public health experts currently lack sufficient data to draw any clear conclusions. Today, Deputy Commissioner for Disease Control, Dr. Jay Varma, and City Health Commissioner, Dr. Dave Choksi, were at Mayor de Blasio's daily press briefing to explain the new developments. Some variants, including the strains that are now more common here in New York City, may be less responsive to vaccines or you have less protection from prior infection. We have not seen that so far in our data. Thank you. Go ahead, Dr. Choksi. Yes, thank you. And just to um, build on what Dr. Varma has said, what we do know about the B1526 variant, uh, which was first identified here in New York City, is that it does appear to be more infectious than other strains of the virus. But for the other questions specifically, does it cause more severe disease? Is it more prone to reinfection? And are vaccines less effective against that variant of the virus? We do not yet have enough information to be able to answer those questions definitively. I do want to assure all New Yorkers that these are things that we are looking at very carefully because Uh, It's very important for us to be able to to answer those questions. Thus far, we do not have any evidence that indicates that it causes more severe disease or leads to reinfection or will reduce the effectiveness of vaccines. But we will continue to investigate this and keep the public updated on our findings. de Blasio went on to list the day's COVID-19 indicators. In terms of vaccinations, effort continues to move strongly. We Heard very good news at the end of the week about additional supply coming in April. Uh, Thanks to the Biden administration, we expect a very substantial increase in our vaccine supply in April. That's going to help us immensely. We want to increase the number of vaccinations we're doing every week. We are ready. But as of today, from day one, we're almost to 3.3 million. The exact number, 3,295,812 vaccinations from day one. 
And now as to the indicators, I want to give you an update. We're not doing the full indicators today because we are having a technical data issue with the state of New York. We are trying to resolve it, uh, getting uh, the information to be 100% accurate. So today we're just going to focus on the hospital piece of our indicators. And hopefully that situation will be resolved by tomorrow. So it's simply uh, indicator number one, a number of people daily admitted to New York City hospitals for suspected COVID-19. Today's report, 194 patients. That's a, a better number, again, than we've seen in recent months. That's a step in the right direction. Hospitalization rate per 100,000, 3.63. And again, we'll hopefully by tomorrow have the overall indicators uh, corrected. Mayor Bill de Blasio. And you're listening to the news on WBAI New York. I'm Paul DiRienzo. Governor Cuomo had his own numbers at another news conference. He reports a 4.1% statewide positivity rate, 46 new deaths, and a 4% positivity rate. Cuomo says more than 5 million people have got the shot. Earlier today, Cuomo was encouraging churches in predominantly black communities to help boost vaccine participation with local health care networks. He's concerned that people of color aren't getting equitable access to the vaccine. Cuomo on Monday spoke at the Grace Baptist Church in Mount Vernon, a small predominantly black community north of the Bronx. He made a crack about age restrictions and the vaccine before handing the mic to the Reverend Al Sharpton, who is getting his shot in Harlem. I recommend it to my mother. I just took it the other day, so I'm not the best example yet. But here you have Reverend Sharpton, who, you know, took the first dose weeks and weeks ago. Because the way the system works in New York is it works by age. (laughs) So the... I don't mean anything by that. I was just saying it works by age. So the more senior got the vaccine first because we respect age. With age comes wisdom, comes seniority, comes experience. What else comes with age? Swagger comes with age. No, I'm not right. He doesn't look happy. So the reverend... Uh, Sharpton has demonstrated his belief uh, by his action. Sharpton says it's time for all New Yorkers to stand up and get the vaccine. And let me say uh, this uh, to the governor, uh, despite these age-wise cracks that you make, we will never forget that in the Later part of last year, when people were looking at the racial inequity of how COVID-19 was impacting the country and the state, you stepped up and raised that issue first and made it a national issue. And therefore, uh, we will always remember that you had the courage to stand up and now we must stand up. And the Reverend described his second dose of the vaccine. I just got my second shot about an hour ago here at Harlem Hospital uh, because of uh, I just am keeping the schedule of when you get your second vaccine. I want people to know I was hesitant. I was one among many that said we need to be sure because history has made us skeptical. But as I saw black doctors like Dr. Kizzy 
corporate step up and say, I was part of making this vaccine. As we saw black experts around the country speak up, and as we saw people still being afflicted, we don't have the luxury of waiting. And Sharpton added, the need is epic. 50 years from now, historians will say, what did they do during this critical time? What did they do when New York State and other states were closed down, when the Broadway lights were dim, the theaters closed, the restaurants closed? What did they do when they couldn't even go to church and had to do it virtually? Let history record that we came together across theological and racial and denominational lines, across political lines. We may be of different colors and different faiths, but we together rolled up our sleeves to save one another. The Reverend Al Sharpton. And nine months after racial justice protests swept across New York City, only two police officers of hundreds investigated have so far faced serious disciplinary charges, despite videos showing police punching, kicking, and trapping demonstrators. The Civilian Complaint Review Board released the figures on Tuesday after the news agency ProPublica reported the CCRB was declining to disclose just how much progress it had made on protest cases. The new numbers show about 60% of the agency's 297 protest-related cases are still open. The author of the story is ProPublica's Eric Umansky. This is information that the CCRB and the city could have put out at any time and has just chosen not to until it got some heat on it, frankly. And how did you get the information? Well, I wrote an article saying they wouldn't release the information, and some city council members and others started asking some pointed questions. And then, lo and behold, a few days later, they released the information. And this is complaints that occurred because of the George Floyd protests last spring. Most people in New York would remember there were enormous protests that happened in the wake of George Floyd's killing and hundreds and hundreds of complaints of abuse by police, many of which were recorded on video. The CCRB, the agency in charge of investigating abuse allegations by police, got 750 complaints. And when it sort of went through and sorted for duplicates and so forth, launched 300 separate investigations. And then the question became, okay, well, that was nine months ago. So what has happened since? And that was the question I went in asking. And what happened to those 300 complaints? Is that an unprecedented number? Yeah, it's an enormous number for such a short period of time. Uh, And that's one of the issues. I mean, the CCRB is frankly, it's a small agency. Um, You know, it's just not used to so many complaints coming in at once. The other thing that's happened is the NYPD has not been particularly cooperative in terms of sharing records, sharing body-worn camera footage, making officers available so that the civilian investigators can actually do their investigations. And what we learn when you put all this stuff together is that indeed, once the CCRB came out with numbers, we found out there's been very, very little progress. The majority of cases are still open investigations of the minority that have been closed. There are a tiny number that have been resulted in recommended discipline for officers, 14 cases overall, and just two of those have been recommended for serious discipline. What's some of the um, things that plaintiffs said the officers did? 
what I looked at most closely was a protest in Mott Haven in the Bronx that was one of the most disturbing incidents because it wasn't a few officers getting overzealous or perhaps getting overwhelmed. It was a kind of planned activity where they trapped protesters in an incredibly tight space. You know, this is known as kettling. But this was three or four car lengths wide for a couple hundred people, perhaps. They trapped them without warning. This was before the curfew. They had no ability to leave. And then police started wading into the crowd, swinging their batons. 60 people were injured. Where does things go from here? What's happening now? We are still waiting, unfortunately, for not only the majority of these cases to still be investigated, but for the CCRB to put out any report about the investigations. I think at the end of the day, this raises real sort of fundamental questions about what is the oversight mechanisms and the accountability mechanisms for police abuse. This is a real case in point where it seems like uh, there are real shortcomings in this process. And that is Eric Umansky and his article that is on ProPublica today is about the lack of clarity in exactly how many protest-related cases were open until ProPublica began its investigation. The release of information about the protest cases comes as the city and the NYPD face increasing pressure to change the disciplinary process for officers. On Tuesday, state legislators introduced a bill to strip the NYPD commissioner of final authority over discipline. The move follows the New York City Council resolution in January calling for the legislature to act. And in more police news, in a private Facebook group called the Pittsburgh Area Police Break Room, many current and retired officers spent the year criticizing chiefs who took a knee or officers who marched with Black Lives Matter protesters whom they called terrorists or thugs. They made transphobic posts and bullied members who supported anti-police brutality protesters or Joe Biden in a forum billed as a place officers can decompress rant and share ideas. Over the group's almost four-year existence, a few dozen members became more vocal, with posts that shifted towards pro-Donald Trump memes and harsh criticism of anyone perceived to support so-called Democrats, Black Lives Matter, or coronavirus safety measures. In June, Tim Hushak, a corporal at the borough of Lincoln Police Department, posted a screenshot of an Allegheny County 911 dispatcher's Facebook page indicating that the phrase Blue Lives Matter used by law enforcement supporters is not equivalent to the slogan Black Lives Matter because policing is a choice, not a fact of birth. He wrote, many negative posts on police and we should trust her with our lives. A few members of the group also were bullied or left the page, including an officer who said the Fraternal Order of Police's Trump endorsement didn't represent her and a black officer who was accused of creating a fake Facebook account to complain about the lack of diversity in local departments. And finally, prison reform advocates rallied outside Governor Andrew Cuomo's Manhattan offices and the executive mansion in Albany on Sunday, demanding that he sign the Halt Solitary Confinement Act into law. Andrea Sears reports. Prolonged solitary confinement has long been classified as torture, but holding prisoners in extreme isolation for weeks, months, and even years has been common in New York prisons. The Humane Alternatives to Long-Term Solitary Confinement Act, passed by the state Senate on Thursday, would put an end to that. 
Jerome Wright, with the Campaign for Alternatives to Isolated Confinement, says Cuomo must sign the bill immediately to send a clear message. That criminal justice in this state is not going to be done with trauma and torture. That is going to be done with treatment, programming, and rehabilitative services. Cuomo has not indicated whether he will sign the bill. Some corrections officers argue the HALT Act would take away an important disciplinary tool and put officers at risk. But Wright notes the HALT Act doesn't prevent the separation of violent or disruptive prisoners. He adds treating prisoners humanely actually makes prisons safer for everyone. Every place that something like this has been enacted in other states and jurisdictions, they report a 25 to 75 percent drop in violence. The bill prohibits solitary confinement longer than 15 days for all people in prison and eliminates it completely for those under age 21, over 55, people with disabilities, pregnant women, and women caring for children. Prolonged isolation has serious impacts on mental health and has been banned by the United Nations. And Wright points out that the United States is bound by the UN's Convention Against Torture. You can't be the lawmaker and the lawbreaker. It's about time we started following the law like the rest of the civilized world, although we call ourselves the most civilized place on the planet. For New York News Connection, I'm Andrea Sears. And that's some of the news for Monday, March 22nd, 2021. The news is produced as Linda Perry. Our engineer is Reggie Johnson. From New York City, I'm Paul DiRienzo for the WBAI News. Thanks for listening.